Andrew Thomas normally lives in St. Paul, but he's one of those doctors and nurses who flew to New York to help with the flood of COVID patients who filled New York hospitals. He's actually at the hospital at Columbia University where he went to medical school a quarter century ago. At night after his 12-hour shifts, he sleeps in his old dormitory, literally in the dorm room he had when he was 23. The hospital scratched out all kinds of extra space for COVID patients, converting 24 operating rooms into intensive care units. But the strangest thing to him? Normally, there'd be family all over the place. But the families are not able to come close to the hospital. They can't even come into the lobby, let alone get to see the people they love. And the other thing is just the reality that most of these people are going to die in these places alone. Most of them are unconscious in medically induced comas because it's easier to survive on a ventilator that way. But because they're unconscious, it means that the gap between these COVID patients and their families is even more profound because they don't talk on the phone or FaceTime or anything. So Andrew suggested to the nurses that maybe they should take notes each day. Little things they notice about each patient to share with the families if the patient dies. I asked him to read a few. Sure. Um, this one's from a nurse named Sandy. And she wrote... Uh, um, this is, I won't say the name. Um, the patient is mostly sleeping. She looks peaceful. Also, I really like her dark green fingernail polish. I would love to know the name of the color. Um, here's another one. Um, I've been parting, uh, the patient's hair to the side. I don't know if that's how he wears it, but I think it looks good that way. Also, yesterday he got a shave and now he looks so young. Um, here's one more. The patient looks so peaceful. He's sleeping and calm. Everyone is jealous of his salt and pepper hair. He looks like George Clooney right now. I talked to a few of the nurses who were writing these notes, and they said that because the patients are unconscious, their interactions are pretty basic. So figuring out what to write can be tricky. Dr. Thomas sees that for sure. Yeah, so, so people end up focusing on, you know, what you can see, which is embellishments like earrings and hairstyles and fingernail polish. And also just trying to emphasize that the people are, in, are comfortable, that they're, they're sleeping, they're not, in, they're not in pain. That's something we really want to, that almost every, all the nurses comment on that, it seems, almost everyone. And, and what's your hope about, about how the families will take this? My hope is that the families will know that their loved ones were being seen as people and treated as people and that they weren't alone uh, as this happened. So they gather details about the people laying in front of them, knowing that there's something like an 80% chance that if they're on a ventilator with COVID, they won't live. Those are the numbers in New York. Those two things are so different in size. Writing down a few tiny observations, measured against the enormity of death and what that means. But sometimes I think that's all you can do. And today on our program, we have two stories where ordinary people rise to this exact task. They look at death, standing there, gigantic, horrifying, and they say something. And in these stories, truly amazing things happen. WBZ Chicago, this American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Stay with us. Act one, really long distance. 
So remember that tsunami that hit Japan? March 2011, giant black waves more than 30 feet tall hit Japan. A guy in a little town called Otsuchi shot this video. You can hear him yelling. All the houses are washing away. Otsuchi had been there for 100 years. In 30 minutes, it was gone, almost totally flattened. The tsunami and the earthquake that went with it killed six times more people than died in 9-11. Over 19,000 people. Another 2,500 are still missing. And in the aftermath, of course, families struggled to figure out how they were going to move forward without the people they loved. And in that town of Otsuchi, it led to this new, I don't know, ritual is not exactly the right word for this, but it's something close to that. This thing that people invented to stay connected to the dead. One of our producers, Miki Meek, has family in Japan, and she grew up going back and forth between there and here. And she watched this documentary about this thing people were doing in Otsuchi on the Japanese news channel NHK and got permission for us to play you some excerpts. Here's Miki. Of all the areas in Japan affected by the tsunami, Otsuchi has one of the highest numbers of missing people, 421. Today, it's still partly in ruins and partly a construction site as they try to rebuild the town on higher ground. But a year before the tsunami happened, this guy named Itaru Sasaki, he was already dealing with a loss. His cousin had just died, and Itaru was having a hard time figuring out how to talk about it. So he did something pretty ingenious. He went out and bought an old-fashioned phone booth and stuck it in his garden. It looks like an old English-style one. It's square and painted white and has these glass window panes. Inside is a black rotary phone resting on a wood shelf. This phone connected to nowhere. It didn't work at all. But that didn't matter to Itaru. He just needed a place where he felt like he could talk to his cousin, a place where he could air out his grief. And so putting an old phone booth in his garden, which sits on this little windy hill overlooking the Pacific Ocean, it felt like a perfect solution. He's saying, because my thoughts could not be relayed over a regular phone line, I wanted them to be carried on the wind. So I named it the wind telephone, Kaze no Denwa. The idea of keeping up a relationship with the dead is not such a strange one in Japan. The line between our world and their world is thin. Lots of families keep a Buddhist altar for their dead relatives in the living room. My uncle has one for our family. There are photos on a little platform, and every day he leaves fresh fruit and rice for them, lights incense and rings a bell. It's a way to stay in touch, to let them know that they're still a big part of our family. So after the tsunami and earthquake happened, word got out about Itaru's special wind telephone, that he was using it as another way to stay connected to the dead. Soon people started showing up randomly on his property and walking right into the phone booth. This has been going on for five years now. Itaru estimates that thousands of people from all over Japan have come to use his phone. A TV station asked Itaru and the people who come to use his phone if they could videotape their calls from a distance and put an audio recorder in the phone booth They wanted to get a sense of how people are still grieving. I watched their documentary after the fifth anniversary of the tsunami back in March. That whole week, all the news programs in Japan were airing memorial programs. But I found the calls in this particular program remarkable and moving for just how simple they were. One woman from Otsuchi named Sachiko Okawa showed up one afternoon. She's 71 years old and lost her husband in the tsunami. She regularly brings her two young grandsons to the phone booth. And you can tell by how casually they talk to him on the phone. They squish into the phone booth with their grandma, 
wearing matching blue and black striped shirts. Sachiko starts the call by picking up the receiver and saying hello. Curlda's grandson quickly jumps in. Hi, Grandpa. How are you? I'll be in fourth grade next semester. Wasn't that fast? Daina, my younger brother, he'll be in second grade next year. Then Sachiko corrects him. She says, no, Daina will be in second grade this year. Not next. Yeah, yeah, this year. A lot of calls were just like this. Straightforward updates about life. The kind of quick highlights reel you might give to any family member you were catching up with on the phone. The boy, he then tells his grandpa. Grandma's fine too. I'm giving the phone to Dinah now. Dinah, his little brother, grabs the phone. Grandpa, I finished all my homework. Sachiko urges him to keep talking. He says, everyone is doing fine. Then he hangs up. They all say goodbye. As they're walking out of the booth, Dinah says, maybe Grandpa will say he heard us. In another call, a woman in a puffy winter jacket with a fur-lined hood shows up at the booth by herself. Her name is Kikue Hirano, and she's 66. She used to live in Otsuchi, but she moved away after she lost her house and her husband in the tsunami. Her husband was a deep-sea fisherman. His name was Miyoji, and they used to talk and drink sake together at night. Now Kikue lives alone, about 50 miles away. But sometimes Kikue finds herself driving back to Otsuchi, into this booth. I watched her do this thing that a lot of callers seem to do. You hear Kikue actually dialing the rotary phone, saying some numbers to herself. Four, two, five, seven, four, four. She's dialing the phone number for her old house in Otsuchi, the last place she knew to reach her husband. Then Kikue just stands in the booth in silence, holding the phone to her ear. Sometimes she fidgets around and tilts her head up and concentrates on the ceiling, the same way I do when I want to cry, but I'm trying hard not to. It doesn't work. Kikue brushes some tears off her face. Eventually, she hangs up. She lingers in the booth a little longer, hands clasped together in front of her, staring at the phone booth floor. She walks out. One pattern that the owner of the phone booth, Itaru, has noticed over the years is that more men than women come to use it. Not surprisingly, this is not a demographic that's known for sharing their feelings, especially the older farmers. They already have a reputation for not talking much. In one of the phone calls recorded in winter, a man with gray hair and a little towel hanging around his neck walks into the garden. This kind of towel is part of the uniform of Japanese farmers. They use them to wipe away sweat and clean their hands. This man opens the telephone booth door, and under his breath, you hear him say, Huh, so this is the wind telephone. This appears to be his very first visit to the phone booth. He lost his oldest son in the tsunami. His son's name was Nobuyuki. 
he also lost his house and had to move into temporary housing with his wife. And recently, she got sick and also passed away. He calls her Okasan. It means mom in Japanese. It's what everyone in the family calls the female head of the house, even the husband. It's a very intimate, loving term. Hello? Nobuyuki. Is mom with you? Sorry to ask this, but take care of her and your grandma and grandpa too. Mom? I'll come again, okay? Mom, I'll be back. Bye. He uses the towel around his neck to wipe his eyes. One of the things that makes these calls so poignant to me is all the understated ways that people are actually saying, I love you and I miss you. I'd never say something so direct like that in Japanese. It's just not done. I've only seen people say it in the soap operas. Aishiteru. Even saying that right now feels weird. I've never said that to my mom or my grandparents. Take this call. It's winter. The phone booth is surrounded by snow. Hello? Mom? Where are you? He's an older man wearing a baseball cap. He also calls his wife mom. His wife, daughter, and mother, they all went missing in that tsunami. It's so cold, but you're not getting cold, are you? Our grandma and our daughter Miyuki with you too? Come back soon. Be found soon. Everyone is waiting for you. Okay? Be found soon. Hurry home, okay? I'll build a house in the same place. Eat something, anything. Just be alive, somewhere, anywhere. I'm so lonely. He never says I love you directly. Real feelings are communicated through small gestures, especially ones of concern. Like when he asks his wife, are you staying warm? Are you eating? And then promising. I'll build a house for us. These are total heartfelt declarations of love. For other men, the phone booth is a place where they can finally say their complicated feelings out loud. They can voice their regrets. Anyone who's had someone close to them die knows this feeling. 
Like, I've kept having the same one-way conversation with my dad in my head ever since he passed away last year. I just keep telling him all the situations where I wish I had been kinder, more patient. One call I watched was from a young father with rectangle glasses and a long black jacket. He lost his family, both parents. His wife, her name was Mine, and a one-year-old son named Issei. Dad? Mom? Mine. It's already been five years since the disaster. If this voice reaches you, please listen. Sometimes I don't know what I'm living for. Please let me hear you call me Papa. Even though I built a new house. Dad, Mom. Mine and Issei. Without all of you, it's meaningless. I want to hear your reply, but I can't hear anything. He hangs up the phone, takes off his glasses, and covers his eyes with his hands. Sorry. I'm so sorry I couldn't save you. There's a couple phrases I heard callers tell the dead again and again. Shinpai shinai, don't worry about us, and gambatteru, which basically means I'm doing my very best. I'm enduring. In Japan, gambatteru, it's a catch-all slogan for slogging through life's many challenges, no matter how tiny or big. From trying to pass a test at school to grieving, you hear it all the time for everything. In the phone booth, gambatteru and shinpai shinai these are key phrases to reassure the dead that the living, the people left behind, they're doing okay, even if they're not. People don't want to worry or burden their loved ones, even dead loved ones. Because most Japanese are Buddhist and generally believe that when someone dies, they're not suddenly relieved of all their earthly concerns. They're not automatically in heaven, happy and carefree. Many people believe that if the dead see a family member suffering, they can't let go of their earthly life. They hesitate to cross to the other side and end up stuck in a no-man's land. I heard these reassurances in a call from a 15-year-old kid named Ren Kozaki to his dad. He arrived at the phone booth after spending four hours on public transportation by himself. 
Ren lives in a city much farther north that wasn't affected as much by the tsunami. But his dad was a truck driver who drove all over Japan. And in a last-minute schedule change, he got sent on a route that took him along the coast when the tsunami hit. He's been missing ever since. Ren went into the phone booth wearing a red backpack. And what he does in his call, you hear him signaling to his dad that it's okay. He should keep moving on into the afterworld. Dad? The four of us are doing fine. We're gambatteru. You don't need to worry about us. Dad, are you doing okay? I do have one question I want to ask you. Why did you die? Why did it have to be you, Dad? Why just me? I've always wondered why am I the only one who is different from everyone else? Anyways, please be found quickly. Where are you now? They never found anything of you. I wanted to talk with you again. Ren left the booth. In late February, he came back with his entire family, his mom, younger brother, and sister. They all drove down to Otsuchi together. And when they got to the phone booth, at first, they kind of awkwardly hung out in front of it. So to break the ice, Ren walks in and places the first call to their dad. He tells him, I brought everyone with me today. Bye. When Ren walks out, his family laughs. They say, that was so fast. Ren shoots back. It was just a quick report to dad that I brought everyone with me today. Next up are Ren's little brother and sister, who are 12 and 14 years old. They go into the booth together, and the sister is talking and laughing nervously. What am I supposed to say? What should I tell him? Wait, 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 don't, don't leave me alone in here. The sister picks up the phone, and let me just say the mom told the film crew that this is a girl who has not said a single word about her dad to anyone since he went missing five years ago. So she picks up the phone and starts to cry. She asks her brother again, what should I talk to him about? Her little brother's name is Riku, and he tells her, say what you wanted to tell him. She says, are you trying to make me laugh, Riku? Riku says, no, I'm not. Then she finally starts talking to her dad. The conversation is all over the place, and she's crying so hard she can barely talk. Dad, I'm so sorry I always used to say you were stinky. (laughs) 
What happened to your promise to buy me a violin? <laughs> now I'll have to buy one myself. Her little brother who sticks close to her, he encourages her to keep going. He says, <laughs> what else? So she tells her dad, I started tennis in junior high school. I'm not in the top eight. I want to be in the top eight in our last tournament. Please cheer for me. I got hooked on this boy band, the Johnnies, when I was in my first year of junior high. I'm still hooked. They both say, Goodbye. They come out of the booth together. Now it's their mom's turn. Her kids tell her, Have a good trip. Good luck. Ren, the oldest, he bows and waves to her. She walks in, picks up the phone, and lets out a big sigh. Where should I start? I feel like you're still alive, somewhere. We had so many things we wanted to do together. Over the phone, we always said to each other, Are you alive? Yes, I'm alive. It was our password between the two of us, wasn't it? I can't ask you that anymore. Come back. We, all four of us together, we will be waiting. Bye. After she comes out, the family lingers outside the phone booth for a while. This was literally the first time they'd all talked about their dad together, since the tsunami happened five years ago. The youngest, Riku, he sat quietly on a bench, with his head in his hands. The night before his dad disappeared, they went to a public bath together. His mom and older siblings tell him, Riku, you don't need to keep your feelings in. Go ahead and cry when you want to. Ren, the oldest, gently teases him. He says, See, he can't stop crying. Mom says, yeah, but... He held back until now. It's okay, because you held back. You endured until now. The sister then hands Riku her handkerchief. The mom says to her kids, we were all about to fall apart. We were so broken. We didn't think we could make it through. And maybe that's why we never talked about dad until now. But talking to him on the phone today, it changed something. Mickey Meek is one of the producers of our program. Thanks to Tomohiko Yokoyama and NHK Sendai, who recorded all this and shared it with us. Today's show is mostly a rerun. We checked this week, and the wind phone is still in operation, though not many visitors right now because of COVID. The Japanese government is asking people to stay home. Coming up, two brothers in their 80s have a last chance to talk to each other before they die, and neither wants to take it. That's in a minute. 
from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Today's program, one last thing before I go. Stories that are about, well, they're about what power do words have in the face of death? We've arrived at Act Two of our program, Act Two, Uncle's Keeper. So in the first act of our program, uh, people kind of defy death by making small talk and some talk that was not so small with their dead relatives. In this act, Somebody wants to do something very similar, make a connection that seemed impossible between people. Except in this story, all the relatives are alive, which you'd think would make it super easy. The story comes from Jonathan Goldstein. Hello? Hey, Dad. Hi, Johnny. Hey, how you doing? Good, you? Good, good. Uh, good yomtev. Shana Tova. Aksameach. <laughs> What's that mean? I'm not sure. Oh, oh. This is my father, Buzz. I'm calling him at his home in Montreal. And the reason we're talking crazy talk is because it's Yom Kippur, the Jewish Day of Atonement, which seems as good a day as any to talk with him about forgiveness. Um, so I wanted, to, yeah. I wanted to ask you something, and I just wanted to gauge your interest. Yeah. How, how would you feel about paying your brother Sheldon a visit? I have no feelings, but I'm not really interested you're not? No. My father, Buzz, is 80, and his brother, Sheldon, his only sibling, is 85. And for the past 40 years, they've pretty much been on the outs. My father lives in Montreal, and Sheldon lives in Florida. And the last time they saw each other, over 20 years ago, was at their mother's funeral, when they had a fight over the details of the arrangements. Since then, they've hardly spoken. It worries me because there's not a lot of time left and I don't want my father to have regrets. And my father has a profound capacity for regret. My mother gave up trying to reunite them years ago after many attempts. So I know that if I don't push him, no one else will. I'm not surprised that you're not jumping at the idea, but I'm a little surprised no. that you're as, uh, against the idea. Yeah, time's passed. Uh... He hasn't shown much interest. So I, I'm respecting that, and I leave him alone. What he did do was he he called you on your 80th birthday uh, not, not yeah. so long ago, and yeah, you felt good I about that. Yeah, I called him on his 80th birthday. This kind of tit-for-tat accounting is what always gets in the way. You know what it is at this point with him? I'll tell you what it is. I don't think it's even anger. He's past anger, and he's past any, any feelings of animosity. He's past that. He just doesn't care. Yeah. You know, that's apathy. I mean, sometimes at least hate or love their emotions. Apathy is nothing. Yeah. You know what, Johnny, as a child, even when I was 10, when I was nine and eight, I, I, I was crazy about him. We had a great, you know, I, I loved him. He was the older brother. He was. Hello? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm listening. Uh, you know, uh, I just looked up to him and he had all the friends. Sometimes he'd take me along with him and he was good. Somebody tried to, somebody tried to call here, binging me here. The most complicated question, the one I keep coming back to, is how did the bad blood begin? And there are many versions. An ill-fated trip to Montreal where Sheldon felt slighted about having to stay in my father's basement an ill-fated trip to New York, where my father felt slighted about having to stay in Sheldon's attic. Rude words spoken to each other's wives. In one version of the story, 
Sheldon's refusal to bring a table to my bris almost resulted in my being circumcised on an ironing board. But in the version being told today, my father was asked by Sheldon to pay more than his fair share for their mother's funeral. And I said, you always working some kind of an angle. So that, he got furious. He got furious. He started screaming into the phone, go to hell, drop dead, blah, blah, blah. He was, that, that was how that ended. But I, I feel he's the kind of guy that he got, he has angles like that, you know. He has angles. I always felt I was on the up and up with him, and he wasn't with me. If you got a stronger sense that he was interested in seeing you, then would you... Yes, yes. You if, would be if more I, inclined he, to see I him. I wouldn't say this house, though. That's out of the question. Okay, quick sidebar. Anytime I've ever raised the prospect of visiting Sheldon, no matter how hypothetical the scenario, my father always makes a point of insisting how no matter what, he would not stay in Sheldon's house, even if he was invited to. Which, I should point out, he never is. I wouldn't stay at his house. How come you... <laughs> I wouldn't stay there. I mean, it's not, not my thing. To, How come you know? always bring that up? I mean, because normally I when someone goes to visit someone that they haven't seen in decades, they'll yeah. stay at a hotel, you know? <laughs> I would stay at a motel or somewhere near his place. A motel. Yeah, no, we'd yeah. get a place, you know, with an ice yeah. machine and, uh, you know. Why? You wanna, you're interested in making a trip? I mean, I'm interested. Do you think that there's anything to be gained in in seeing him? Hmm. I, mean, I, I guess there's something. I mean, you know, you share your common experience and you talk about the old days and you, there are things that only he and I can remember, you know? Yeah. You know, you... What you could do is you yeah. could call him yeah. and see what, 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 what his attitude is, you know? It depends on, you know, how, 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 how you feel, uh, what, what kind of reception you get. Yeah, I mean, I would. I would be happy to do that. My well, concern my, is I, that— I like your initial uh, suggestion, that you call him, feel him out, and see what he's like. Okay, I didn't suggest that, but you you suggested that. Uh, yeah, but I like that. It just because you'll give me an honest you'll give me an honest reaction. I'm happy to do it, but I mean, what 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 are you looking for from from what do you want to hear from him? I miss my brother. I would like to see him. Okay, that's all. Okay, um, you understand? And you come back with me with an honest evaluation. Sheldon. Yes, speaking. Hi. That was quite a shock uh, getting your phone call. You said, John, uh, uh, my hearing is not that great. Okay. And when I heard the first message, I'm saying, who the heck is that? I don't know anybody by that name. Sheldon now lives outside of Fort Lauderdale, but my few memories of him are from when he lived in upstate New York. I remember he lived in a trailer, I remember that he worked at a local prison, that he smoked cigars, that he looked a little like my father, but was hunched, like the world was weighing down on him. And he always wore this expression on his face that seemed to say, you gotta be kidding me. You're keeping okay? You're keeping occupied? Yeah, I read a lot. I go to the gym, I uh, go shopping, you know, here and there, little things here and there. 
And so you, you still go, how often do you go to the gym? Three times a week. Um, my father also goes to the gym. Um, that's a part of his routine also. He was th- they, he was happy to hear from you on his 80th birthday. Yeah, well, uh, he, he didn't call me on my 85th, though. Tit, me tat. To be honest with you, um, I've been, in the last few years, I've been a loner. Uh-huh. You, you would basically almost call me a recluse. I don't socialize with many people, and uh, I really don't give a damn what anybody thinks. Yeah. And uh, contrary to popular belief, I like being alone by myself. I get along with myself very well. Yeah. Look, uh, uh, I don't want to be rude or yeah, anything, yeah. but I want to go have my lunch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I, Sheldon, I appreciate your talking to me. And um, you would be amenable to, um, to, to spending some time? Why not? Uh, we are brothers. I mean, we're not close or anything, but, uh, you know, uh, we're not going to have a chance to see each other much in the future. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, is, is that is that anything that you think about? Not much, no. Press where to and then type. you have an address? Yeah, I do. Okay. My dad and I meet up at the Fort Lauderdale airport. I flew from New York and my dad from Montreal. My father's all dressed up, wearing a faux suede sports jacket that I've never seen him in. We grab our airport rental and prepare for the two-hour drive to Sheldon. In the 90-degree heat, it's immediately made clear that faux suede might not have been the best fashion choice. It's like we're on a safari. (laughs) On the road to Sheldon's, my father will experience a spectrum of feelings. As we first set out, there's excitement. You know, my brother was funny in a lot of ways. I could laugh. We're going to have laughs with him. You know what I mean? He's a very funny man. A half an hour in, and there's bitterness. We invited him to your bar mitzvah, and he returned a very cold card. Sorry, we will not be attending. It was, you know, it was so mean. You know what I mean? Even the writing. An hour in, and how is Buzz feeling? I'm relaxed. Oh, good. Kind of old to get anxious. You know what I mean? Yeah. A half an hour to Sheldon's. A little bit apprehensive now. <laughs> Ten minutes to Sheldon's, and Buzz is feeling... All right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you feeling a little... Uh... Oh, it's going to be strange. Yeah. It's going to be very strange. I mean, he, the man is a stranger to me now, and yet he's my brother. You understand? It's a very strange feeling. Yeah. <clears throat> I wonder if he's getting nervous. Maybe. Because he's waiting for us, right? Yeah. Sheldon lives in the corner house on a quiet suburban street. Ring the bell. I guess. Is this his door? I'll double check. Maybe there's oh, here a he is. Oh. Oh. Hey. Hello. Hey. Hi. 
good to see you. Good to see you, Jonathan. Good to see you. Come in. Thank you. Lately, I've become a monk. Me and my pussycat. Oh, you got a cat. Oh, come here. What? <laughs> After all the years and the worry and the dread, things seem to be going swimmingly. We sit down at Sheldon's kitchen table, and my father gets right into it. Now there's things I want to know. Uh, you said that Ra Rainy died. Yeah, she did. She did die. The dead are a good place to begin. As a subject, they're easily agreed upon and not likely to spark a fight. The uncle died. The uncle died? He was the youngest brother. Oh, he died brother. long ago. He died, eh? Oh, you know who died? Who? Hoffman. Hoffman. The real Yeah, I didn't know him that well. <laughs> I didn't know Yeah. Knish. We used oh, to call that's shocking. Yeah, yeah, he, he was fat. He was fat. Redhead. Redhead, yeah, right. Yeah. Knish. Remember, Johnny, remember Johnny? Johnny John, was a sex maniac. Johnny, Johnny. oh, he would f a dog on yeah, the street Johnny, if he, he saw the dog. He tried to <laughs> the dog. Can I get you guys a cold beer? I'd like a beer. Yeah, I'll, sure. a beer. I'll have a beer. Thank Even you. though they're in their 80s, Sheldon and Buzz still possess voices and temperaments suited to shouting out Brooklyn tenement windows, while my voice yeah, sure. is best suited to asking a waitress if there will be a sharing charge. I defy... Forgot about that, sorry. Case in point, this is Sheldon accidentally swiping a portable microphone receiver off the kitchen table and me trying to smooth things over. Take this off, will you? It's annoying. No, here, just put it in the uh, in your pocket there. Just take it off, would you please? Thank you, thank you. Over the next two days, my testes will flee like frightened cockroaches, upward, ascending to heights not seen since the bar mitzvah that Sheldon was not attending. While it's fun watching them reminisce, I'd say that about 80% of my Uncle Sheldon's stories about the good old days are filthy enough to make them virtually unbroadcastable. But here's one, specially selected, and beeped for your delicate ears. Wally Rosen. Wonder whatever became of him. He was a bum. Me and Wally <laughs> Rosen were joining the weightlifting club. Yeah. So yeah. he had to be tested for a rupture. He, I remember he put his hand... <laughs> I started laughing so hard, I... <laughs> right in his... Over the years, I've seen my father in the role of husband, uncle, and grandfather, but I've never really seen him in the role of younger brother. How odd to see it now at 80. He sits beside Sheldon with this expression I've never seen on his face. It's wide-eyed, sweet, and deferential. But as the day wears on, Sheldon and Buzz begin to squabble over their memories, fighting over every little detail. Remember the hullabaloo he had with the, uh, the dye, hair dyer, that heavy-set girl? She's a manicurist. She was a hair dyer. Manicurist. No, she was a hair dyer. Here's what happened. She went over to Irving's. They even argue over the death of their grandmother. I found her body. I, I opened did. the door. No, I no. Did. My mother was across the street at Greenberg. I remember walking I looked in, in on her. And I knew she was dead. Yeah. Soon I, saw I never saw a dead body in my life, but I knew she was dead. Sure. So wait, so you found her or you found her? I remember looking in on the room to see how I, she did. I said I it was awfully her. quiet. I found her, but let him take the credit. No, I'm not. It's <laughs> <laughs> some credit. The whole afternoon is like this. Every subject, even their dead grandmother, somehow becomes fodder for another pissing match. 
They're burning up all this time with small talk when what they need is some big talk. In particular, they need to address a story that I know holds a great deal of meaning for my father. It took place in 1939, on the day their mother left them. I've only ever heard the story from my father, never from Sheldon. I wanted to ask what you remember, what your perspective. Uh, all I remember that time was when Pop was smacking her around and she ran out in the hall in her slip. She's fighting in the hall. Well, and no, the next he, he, he was smacking, smacking her, her around. around. Yeah. She ran out. Yeah. So what happened the next morning? The, the next morning? Yeah. They Look were, in the closet, her clothes were gone. She left. Oh. Uh, what happened after this in my father's telling is that his mother returned soon after she left with a policeman in tow. And he, they came back to try to get you. They wanted you to come back with them. And where were you? I was there, but she was, they were trying to drag you out of the house. And they, <laughs> they weren't trying to grab no, you out? No, no, I could stay with my father and grandmother. This is the point of the story for my father. It proves once and for all how his mother loved Sheldon more than she loved him. Sheldon didn't move out with her, and after a year, their mother returned, and together, Buzz and Sheldon grew up under the same roof, in the same bedroom, often sleeping under the same blankets, each knowing who the mother had chosen, and each having to do their best to carry on and live life with the burden of that knowledge. A couple times during the day, I ask them why they haven't spoken in so long, and they both insist, maybe out of embarrassment, that they do talk, just not often. But it isn't true. In fact, my father learned of Sheldon's wife's death many years after the fact, and then only from me. Sheldon's daughter got in touch through Facebook, and we made a phone date where she caught me up on her life and Sheldon's. And a few nights later, while over at my parents' for dinner, I told my father of his sister-in-law's death. There was a terrible look that fell across his face. One of sadness, but something else too. Maybe shock over just how far he and Sheldon had drifted. I, I found out uh, about Judy, about her death. Who? Your, your wife. I didn't know about it either until you told me. Yeah. Uh, didn't I tell you? No. Nope. You didn't know about it? No. We didn't know. Hmm? We didn't know. She was sick about two years, uh, Judy. Too bad. Well, when she got the diagnosis, she was already stage four. What did I know about cancer? I so the surgeon, so he said, so I says, well, doctor, I said, how did the surgery go? Oh, he said it went very well. But, the cancer's in her liver now. Oh, it spread. I said, it's in her liver? I said, what? You know, where I usually eat, I come in by myself by the bar. They got a waitress there who always waits on me. She takes good care of me. For dinner, Sheldon takes us to a local Outback Steakhouse. As people walk by, he provides a running commentary. 
of an elderly couple. Don't get like that couple, whatever you do. It's time for the execution. Of an overweight couple. Oh, they fat. People are fat today. It's as though he's sharpening his wit, readying it for the main event, teasing my dad about Canada. I don't know how you could take Canada when you're around. Why? So we got nice neighbors. It's nice. It's okay. Uh, what was I going to say? Uh, You're living in the same place for how many yeah. years? Oh, about uh, over 35, 38 years, something like that. I'm happy here. Yeah. Yeah. For my father, I know this is a touchy subject, believing, as he always has, that Sheldon looks down on him for the dinkiness of his Canadian life and home. It's like a constant reminder of just who is second best. Later, my father will repeat Sheldon's words. You're still living in that same place, he'll say, for how many years? But just then, I watch my father clench and unclench his jaw, as he does when he is brooding. I know he's trying to take the high road, trying not to ruin the evening. What? $200.30? It ain't him? Sheldon invites us back to his place for cookies, but my father says he isn't up for it. As we walk through the restaurant parking lot to the car, my father is silent. I find myself feeling protective of him, like maybe encouraging this trip had been a bad idea, only making things worse. After midnight, lying awake in our hotel, my father insisted we stay at one. I lay in bed thinking about that day in 1939, when my grandmother came back for Sheldon, not my father. For my father, not only did it push him away from Sheldon, making him feel jealous and resentful, but it also cast a shadow over the rest of his life, causing him to always feel passed over. He's mellowed with age, but as a kid, I saw it come out in all kinds of ways, always sensitive to slights, ready for a fight at the smallest perceived offense. I wonder if there's a different way for my father to see things. If there is, the only living person in this world who can help is Sheldon. When their mom left, Sheldon was nine, my father five. Sheldon would have understood a lot more than my father. Yesterday, Buzz and Sheldon talked like a couple of kids who used to play stickball in the old neighborhood. Today, if me and my big fat meddling yap have any sway, they'll have a chance to talk as men, as brothers even. Because if not now, when? Day two. This is a damn good cigar. He sent me. He sent oh, Dominican me. Republic. They make a damn good cigar in Dominican Republic. Yeah. What are you talking about? Despite the difficulties of last night, the coin is flipped back to the good side. Sheldon offers my father a cigar. And with the cigar, some cigar talk. Some pretty foul cigar talk. We're riding on Queens Boulevard. Johnny's in the back seat with the who? He's got his naked ass up in the air. And he's- <laughs> And he's humping. Well, the funny thing is, we had to stop for a light. And there's a truck driver sitting in the cab up high. I looked at the car, it was funny. See, if you guys missed each other, what? Did you miss each other? You know, he asked the weirdest questions. What's that? What is he, abroad? No, I mean, I don't know. That's, you know. 
eager to prove to my Uncle Sheldon that in spite of the fact I'm wearing my wife's travel deodorant, I am indeed not abroad, I allow them to return to more pressing matters, their prostates. The guy says, Jesus, he says, your uh, prostate feels like the moon craters in there, he said. Yeah, that's I, what he I said, said thank you, yeah. doctor. <laughs> he was complimenting me. <laughs> So if I could steer this away from the prostates. So my father said that it's significant to, to him to have come. What do you say? I agree with whatever he said. But what about you? Do you I said I agree with whatever right. he said. Do you want a written no, contract? No, I'm happy for that. It feels like I'm getting a you taste of what growing up with Sheldon might have been like. At least you know what you are. So again, I make my move. So I have some questions uh, just about because the stories that I know from my father, but I'm curious what your take is because you were older. Do you remember um, w- what what was going on when your mom, when your mother left originally? Like what, what, why, and what was going on? Didn't you cover this ground before yesterday? But from my father's perspective, the way I understood it was always you were the favorite. Did you did you feel that way? At this point, Sheldon's face suddenly softens. I always felt that I got the short end of the stick. <laughs> yeah, but you, you were, you were a, a kind of a favorite with my mom. Yeah, maybe with mom, because maybe temperamentally we were closer than I was with my father. My father never gave me spit. Did you ever get any money from my father? Can't remember. You never got a dime. No, can't remember. You never, one time I sprained my ankle so bad. I'll never forget that. That was terrible. I laid in that bed, man. He was, uh, he he says to me, you lazy bum. Yeah. Man, he went off on me that time. He took Sheldon once. Sheldon happened to say the word He came in with that strap swinging. With the buckle. And, and, you know, I can understand it leaving a, a feeling of resentment and, and dislike. He, uh, that was his way of uh, uh, communicating with us. Jesus smack, what a smack, way. and then... Uh, what a way. Yeah. Was he easier on you, do you think? Uh, it wasn't that easy, but he was tough on, on Sheldon, wasn't he? I that? know you were closer yeah, to him yeah. than I was. Yeah. A lot of things that went on. And you didn't understand really what no, was I did. going That's, on. So you had a different take? Why, are you, you su- are you surprised by... But I was a kid. I didn't understand it. But you didn't know that Sheldon was getting it so bad? No. In Buzz's telling, their father was always a more or less benign, childish figure, incapable of expressing his feelings, and so given to temper tantrums. For Buzz, it was their mother who was the manipulator, the woman who played the brothers off each other. But hearing Sheldon's take, it sounds like maybe their mother didn't come to take Sheldon because she loved him best, but simply because he needed more protecting from their father. For the first time during our trip, I can see my father considering Sheldon's point of view, actually taking it in. I know it's intense for him because he can't even meet Sheldon's eyes. Instead, he looks at me, addresses his comments to me. You know, it's sad that my father had such a negative impact on him, you know? Just awful. 
because he had so much going for him. He, he was a wonderful son. He worked hard. He was a good boy. You talking, he went to school. You're talking like I'm a failure in life. No, you weren't a failure. Now That's the thing that I'm saying. Yeah, you weren't a failure. But all I'm saying is that emotionally, he left an impact on you. It took a long time for me to get out of that emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, now, I'm at peace with myself. Uh, I can talk about him and laugh about it. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want peace, quiet. I'm happy living by myself. Are you lonely, Sheldon? No. No. The last time my father saw my grandfather in full health, my dad was visiting from Canada. My grandfather asked my father to drive him to the cemetery to visit his parents' grave. And once there, my grandfather wept inconsolably. Later that day, he would succumb to a stroke and shortly after be moved to a nursing home. With Sheldon being more local, the burden of my grandfather's care fell mainly to Sheldon. It seems like a lot of the family's burdens fell to Sheldon. They put a lot of the, a lot of the responsibility on him that my dad should have been taking that responsibility. And he shouldered that. Who well, who's going to take care of you? Yeah. Who's going to take yeah. you to school? Yeah. Yeah. Meet yeah. you. I remember one time I was late or something. You stood outside that uh, school. You were sure. crying. I, was, yeah. Yeah. I said, Buzzy, I'm here, I'm here. Yeah. He was good to me. A lot of times time I was mean to, me. to you. Yeah. Mean, you know. Used to, you were my older brother. He used to knock the shit out of me sometimes. But, you know, that's the way it is with, with brothers. Well, yeah. I was good in some ways. Some ways I was mean. Well, who was who was not? Who was not? <laughs> who was not? So if you feel like you were compelled to see each other now because you knew that, you know, it's an hour never kind of thing, then it means that it was important to you both, right? To to see each other. You wanna take that? Sure. I'm not, yes, yeah, it's an e- easy answer, yes. Yes, because we're not getting any younger. I mean, what's what's down the road? I'm 80, he's 85. I mean, because there was a lot of water under the bridge and we want to close that bridge now. I want to feel easy now. I want to say now he's going to be 86. I want to call him on his birthday and say happy birthday to him now. I'm not going to stand in these ceremonies anymore. As my father speaks, as per his brother's example, dropping F-bombs like he's in a Guy Ritchie film, Sheldon keeps his arms crossed and his eyes shut tight. He's quiet for several seconds, and then he reaches out to pet his cat. Should I leave you the cat in my will if anything happens? If anything happens, I'll take care of the cat. (laughs) I'll take care of the cat. (laughs) I'm happy I came to see you. That I am. I'm happy you came here. That's good. Very good. If you want to buy a house, When it's time to leave, Sheldon walks us outside. But before we get into the rental, he points across the lawn to his neighbor's house. He tells my father that it's for sale, and then he tells him the asking price. And my father says that doesn't sound bad at all. And Sheldon says that, what with Canada being so bloody cold, my father should consider moving to Florida. And my father says maybe he will. All right, you take care. Water under the bridge. Take care. Take care, you too. Safe trip, both of you. Thank Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. We'll speak. We'll speak. They don't get too emotional. They don't even hug goodbye. 
they just shake hands. And with that, it feels like Buzz has forgiven Sheldon, and Sheldon has forgiven Buzz. Turn right on Northwest Bedford Drive. Oh my God, I feel so different now. You know that? I feel different, Johnny. I just feel so different. This has taken a lot off my shoulders. I, uh, you know? Jonathan Goldstein. This story was produced by Wendy Dora with some help from Chris Neary for Jonathan's podcast, Heavyweight. If you have never heard Heavyweight and don't know where to get started, I have to say it is such an utterly original program, and Jonathan has put together a playlist of his favorite episodes. Just search Heavyweight Starter Kit on Spotify. Jonathan, by the way, says his dad and Sheldon are doing fine under lockdown. Sheldon says that he's happy with the peace and quiet. Today's program was first broadcast four years ago, produced by Robin Semyon. Our staff for this episode, Elna Baker, Susan Burton, Zoe Chase, Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Neil Drumming, Karen Duffin, Emmanuel Jochi, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Jaffe Walt, David Kestenbaum, Miki Meek, Jonathan Mantivar, Christopher Sotala, Matt Tierney, and Nancy Updike. Production help for this rerun from Nora Gill, Catherine Raimondo, and Stone Nelson. Our translator for the wind phone was Kiko Matsuo. Special thanks today to Emily Engel-Young, Brittany Grivos, Dragana Novakovic, Helen Gary, Yuki Zason, Noriko Meek, Karen Jeffrey, John Matthews, Christine Fellows, Haley Shaw, and Lawrence Tassoni. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. We're during lockdown or during your commute to your essential job. You can listen to 700 episodes of our show for absolutely free. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the public radio exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Tori Malatia. Presidential debates are coming up later this year. He tells everybody he knows why I'm never chosen to ask questions at the presidential debates. You know, he asks the weirdest questions. Well, I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Mm-hmm.